Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, take our minds and think through them. Take our lips and speak through them. Finally, take our hearts and set them on fire for you this morning. All this we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. When I was living downtown in my single days, one Wednesday night was particularly memorable for me, not because of an almost two-hour trustee meeting, thankfully we haven't had any of those here, or because of a workout I had after that, or a grocery store run after the gym. It was memorable because of what happened when I was heading home, arrived home. I was walking from my parking lot, where the building I live downtown, to uh, the building, and it was a little after 11 p.m. I'd gotten home many times at this hour before, so I wasn't concerned, and I was lugging my milk and toilet paper that I just got from my car to inside the building. My head was down. I was thinking about the day. And as I approached the breezeway, which connects the parking lot to the inside door, a man approached me wanting some food. Again, this is not abnormal. Even at this hour, I had no problem with needy people downtown before. Over the last two years, I had talked with many of them, had helped many of them, even had dinner with one once. But there was something about this man that was different. His body language was off. His eyes were glazed over. Uh, he got too close to me. But I still told him, no, I don't have any food, but how about some cash? So I set down my groceries and pulled out my wallet. I held it at an angle so he couldn't see inside. And I gave him more than I planned because I had a couple ones or a 20. So I gave him a 20. But he didn't respond in a way that was normal when you give something to someone. He wasn't grateful. He wasn't, didn't say anything. He didn't look me in the eye afterwards. He just started to walk away. And, and I should have left him be. But instead, as I picked up my groceries again, I asked a few friendly questions, which stopped him asking, uh, well, where, where uh, are you from? How long have you been here? And he said, Charlotte, and he's been here seven months. And then I asked, well, what brought you here? Some family or friends? And he didn't answer that question. He start, just started to look around and got excited. He then reached out and grabbed one of my grocery bags, a paper bag, the one with toilet paper in it. And I suppose since the only person who's tried to steal from me before is my twin brother, I acted like I did when he tried to steal from me. I pulled back and held on to my groceries, and I said, hey, buddy, no. And then I pointed at him again and said, no, and he backed off. And then I picked up the portion of the bag he ripped off and my keys, which had fallen to the ground, and looked at him again and said, it's just a bag of toilet paper and walked in the building door, and as it shut, it locked behind me. The next day, I reported the attempted robbery. The point of the story is this. If we expect to live a life that never takes any risks, that never reaches out to anyone in need, that never encounters any crime, or never goes through any storms, then it's really not a Christian life. I mean, just listen to our gospel story today. It starts out saying, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. On their own, the disciples would have never done this at night. It was too dangerous, for you never knew when a violent storm would come up. You never knew how strong those winds could be. You never knew when you were going 
uh, once the cloud, where you were going, once the clouds rolled in. I mean, they didn't have compasses or GPS, but it's Jesus who directed the disciples to do this one night. And it's Jesus who made them take this risk in order to teach them a lesson. For sure enough, a storm came together. That night, a strong wind pushed against the boat. Waves were buffeting against it. The disciples were trying their hardest to make it to the other side as quickly as possible, but apparently they weren't making too much progress because they were still on the lake shortly before dawn on the fourth watch of the night, the text says. And to make matters worse, the disciples start to see a figure emerging off in the distance. It looks like it might be coming from the sea. And then it gets a little bigger as it gets closer and larger as it gets closer still. And the disciples are getting very afraid. I mean, wouldn't you? <laughs> You're in a boat. You can't see much around you at night. A storm is brewing. A mysterious figure is approaching. I think we'd all be terrified. And this is especially the case for the disciples, for they had a great body of stories to describe what this figure could be. It was in their mythology, even in their scriptures. It was a figure of anarchy and turmoil and chaos. He is described as invincible and untouchable and beyond the control of any human will. His name was Leviathan. And we find out about him in the Old Testament from Job 41. Notice how the author of Job asks these rhetorical questions showing that this figure cannot be tamed in any way or treated like any other captive. The book says, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? No. Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? No. Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. The sword that reaches him has no effect, nor does the dart or the javelin. Iron he treats like straw, bronze like rotting wood. Nothing on, his earth, on earth is his equal. He is a creature without fear. So the disciples see this figure emerging from the water and the storm, and they are terrified. Their worst nightmare is coming true. Leviathan lives, and he's coming to get them. This beast, which represents the chaos and might of the sea, appears as if it is going to overtake them, and the disciples are wondering how any of them are going to survive. And isn't it interesting that Jesus made the disciples go out into the lake so that they would experience this? Have you ever been here? Have you ever taken a risk in your walk with Jesus and it seemed to backfire on you? Have you ever tried to show love to someone who is difficult and they just made your life worse? Have you ever tried to lead a faithful life for God and then all of a storm, a storm comes and threatened your life? That's exactly what happened to Stephen Petro over 30 years ago. Stephen was a young 20-something working in New York City, and over the course of a few months, he felt like something wasn't quite right with him. He didn't have energy like he usually did. He felt a little sick to his stomach. He had pain in a particular spot of his body. So he went to a doctor and had some tests done on him and found out at the age of 26, he had testicular cancer. 
Stephen was a Christian. He'd been trying to lead a faithful life, and now Stephen was facing a life-threatening storm. In a recent column, he wrote, I was assigned to room 821 to await my first surgery. And when I got into that hospital room, I began to complain right away. <laughs> During my intake, I told the nurse, I can't possibly sleep on these cotton polyester sheets, and how come no one told me to bring my nice and comfortable pillows? The nurse had heard these complaints before. She knew what they really were, fear. So she touched Stephen on the arm and said, save your strength for the things that really matter. And by the way, the sheets are 100% polyester. <laughs> and just as the disciples had seen a mysterious figure approach them at night, so did Stephen. For later on, in the midst of his fear and inability to fall asleep, a tall, dark man wearing a pale blue coat visited him in his room. Stephen said, I don't recall much of what he said. It was something about him being a patient here once and about being my age then. After 10 minutes, I looked up at him and said, oh, so you had my cancer and survived. He nodded yes, and then Stephen then wrote, he left me there with the precious gift, hope, and I've carried it with me ever since. It was no different with the disciples that night in the boat. Just when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse, when the winds, wave, and storm were at their height, when this figure who might be Leviathan is approaching them at that moment, they hear the words of their Savior and Messiah, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus appeared dominantly and miraculously on the scene. He is unaffected by the natural conditions around him. He walks on the water because he's a person of a different dimension. Matthew is showing that Jesus is the Lord of creation and the master of the seas. He's actually pulling from an Old Testament theme here, seen in many books, especially the Psalms. From Psalm 74, it says, It was you, O God, who split open the sea by your power. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams and dried up the ever-flowing rivers. And this incredible surprise of Jesus walking on the water seems to give Peter great hope and excitement. He immediately recognizes that Jesus is the God of Israel since he can do this. So he immediately calls out to his Lord saying, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water with you. And since Jesus wants his disciples to share in his power and authority, he says, come. And here Peter illustrates what discipleship is all about. He calls Jesus Lord, and he wants to imitate what his Lord is doing. And that's how Jesus wants us to act too. In the midst of our storms, in the midst of our fear, in the midst of taking risks for our faith, Jesus wants us to keep our eyes on him, to walk toward him on the water, not in a literal sense, but in a biblical sense, to walk on the waters of chaos, with Jesus to conquer our fears of Leviathan by looking at our Savior and to realize that no matter how awful the storm may get, there is hope, there is grace, there is love. For Jesus comes to us in our storm saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. So Peter then gets out of the boat and confidently walks towards Jesus on the water. 
He doesn't cower in fear. He doesn't hunker down in the boat. He doesn't think the storm will prevail at the end of the day. Instead, he believes Jesus will. Now, obviously, he wavers in that faith as he begins to see the wind and the waves, but it's a lesson for all of us. In the midst of our storms that come in in our lives, the turbulence we might see on the news or the fear that people fear feel because of bad people or crime or sickness or disease, Peter shows us that we can focus on Jesus more in these storms or we can focus more on the chaos. Keeping our eyes on Jesus causes us to walk on top of the waters of fear, anxiety, and anarchy, but focusing on the chaos causes us to sink into them. Stephen knows that now. For after 12 years, when he went through that chemotherapy, 12 years later, he thought he could never go back to that hospital. It brought back too many bad memories. It made him think of his own mortality. It gripped him with fear. But 12 years after his successful treatment, he heard about the program that helped him, which is called Patient to Patient. It matched cancer survivors up with patients who had just been diagnosed with cancer. And Stephen thought to himself, that's what I need to do. I need to start facing my fears and loving people, as God calls me to, instead of letting the fear of cancer again dominate my life. After a year of doing this, Stephen wrote about an experience he had one night. He said, this evening I'm visiting a patient who is a middle-aged dad. In addition to having my cancer, Michael is in my own room, 821. Walking through the doorway zaps me out of the present and back to 13 years ago. During my treatment, I so feared my fear that merely entering the hospital would make me gag. It wasn't long before I knew exactly how many steps it was to the nearest bathroom so I could go throw up. But now 13 years later, Stephen said, I've come to an understanding about my cancer fear. I've gotten kind of personal with it. I going so far as to name it Max with three X's because it's a triple X fear, similar to how the Israelites called the sea Leviathan out of fear. Stephen wrote, each week as I put on my blue coat, Max and I say hello to each other in acknowledgement that both of us are still around. Stephen said, once I enter room 821, though, Max has to step aside because this moment is all about Michael. I first introduce myself, I tell them I'm a volunteer, I keep it short. We're not instructed to say cancer because patients react to that in all sorts of ways. Michael sees me and asks me to sit, but he continues to watch the TV. And so I look at the screen and then I look at him, I look at the screen again, I look at him again. I guess he's in no rush, Stephen wrote. And truth be told, neither am I. Even though it's Christmas, even though the hospital frenzy is all around us, we just sit there looking at the TV on that December night. Stephen wrote, all was calm, all was bright in room 821. Finally, Michael started to chat. It's pretty clear he, he knows what's wrong with him. Suddenly, he's really paying attention, and he, he looks up at me. His eyes are focused on my upper body, especially my hair. He says, if all the pieces suddenly come together, and he asks, you're a cancer survivor, aren't you? Yes, I am, Stephen says to him, remembering the moment that happened to me when that tall, dark stranger said the same thing to me and gave me the gift of hope so many years ago. 
Stephen then wrote, the truth is every patient I've talked to as a volunteer gives me something too. For instance, the following Tuesday after I talked with Michael, I visited a woman named Mary Ann who was struggling with the surgery of the appendix. Describing her first day after surgery, Mary Ann began to have some serious issues, and she asked Stephen, were you ever afraid during your treatment? Yes, Stephen said. Then she asked me what I've been afraid of, what my fear was. I told her in great detail and ended by explaining the worst part, how despite having supportive friends and family, I still felt utterly alone. And then Mary Ann reached out and grabbed my hand. There we were, Stephen said, in that big hospital, holding hands and crying together. In a hospital so busy, in that Christmas season where it can be so difficult to reach out and touch someone, we had done just that. Stephen left that night. He did what he always did. He took the elevator down to the bottom floor. He took off his blue coat and sat down silently in the lobby to recite the Lord's Prayer. Then as he walked out onto the street, he saw his reflection in the sliding doors. But as he looked this time, Max, or that figure of fear, was nowhere to be seen. He'll greet me here next week, Stephen said, but for now I'm going home with hope, with a capital H. In our lives of faith, Jesus will lead us through some storms. Some will be scary. Some will be full of chaos. Some will be life-threatening. But the choice always given to us when we hear Jesus' words, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid, is whether we will fix our eyes on him more so that we can walk on top of the waters of chaos and fear or whether we will focus on the storm more and sink into the waters of chaos and doubt. The choice in every storm is ours. I hope Jesus and his powerful love capture our attention more than the fearful yet temporary storm. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, when things get difficult and when we take risks, inspire us to keep you and your love first and foremost in our minds and decision-making. Else we will sink into fear and chaos. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.